So after we've seen the, the, the long counsel and argument of Job with his three friends, and it, it has all been found wanting such that they are left in, in, in a frustrated silence. And after Job has, has brazenly, as we saw last week, rested his case that he is indeed innocent before God and thus unjustly suffering at the hand of God, suddenly we're introduced to a, a, a new voice, a, a surprise witness, if you will, taking the stand neither for the, the prosecution or for the defense, but claiming to speak to both on, with, by the Spirit of God. And we remember from the story, or if you haven't been here, that, that, it, that in the midst of Job's great suffering and pain, his three friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, all have, have, have sought to, to speak to him and have come to the same conclusion, that since God punishes the wicked and with suffering and he prospers the righteous with blessing, and since Job is undergoing such great suffering, therefore, there must be some great sin, some great evil in Job's life to deserve such punishment from God. His three friends have sought to, to justify God by wrongly condemning Job. Job, on the other hand, can't accept their explanation since he knows he's been blameless and upright before God and he knows God sees him that way. And thus he doesn't deserve such calamity at God's hands. And while he doesn't, he doesn't reject the truth that, that God does punish wickedness and he does prosper righteousness, that simple explanation, which his friends kind of apply to every situation, doesn't fit in his case. And so his only conclusion is that God has somehow turned against him. And Job begins to question God's goodness. He begins, to, he begins to raise the question of, is God truly just? And he concludes that in a, at the end of chapter 27, or 30, uh, excuse me, 31, <laughs> he concludes that if he could just stand before the Lord, and if God would just, would just let him make his case, that he would enter like a prince and show him and prove his innocence. And so Job begins to justify himself by starting to wrongly accuse God. And they've each argued their case to explain why all this is happening to Job. And they have to some degree reached a dead end at this point. And they're, they're still left with unanswered questions. And, and this is where this young man Elihu enters in. Who for the next six chapters, running from chapter 32 all the way through chapter 37, will expound upon the situation from a perspective that neither party up to this point has been able to see. Now these chapters, and again, we, we're not reading them all. I encourage you to go and, and read through them uh, yourself. But these chapters have been described as some of the most interesting as well as the most difficult in the book of Job. Commentators vary widely in their opinions of Elihu and his contribution to the story. Most have viewed his contributions somewhat negatively, seeing him as just an angry young man who, who brashly steps in to, to rebuke his elders and to rebuke Job and who really offers nothing more than another long-winded recap of the three older friends' empty arguments. As one writer summarizes 
Elihu has a lot to say that is true, but utterly irrelevant to Job's case. Older commentators often viewed this speeches, these speeches as, as secondary insertions, as placed in later by another author, perhaps to reflect later interpretation and understanding of the, the debates that had gone on earlier. But, but this has little textual support and really doesn't fit within the overall uh, story of Job as well as having them be the words of Elihu. And a few think Elihu is actually central to grasping the larger meaning of the book of Job. And, and while I'll admit Elihu does come across as a bit pompous, and certainly he is not short on words, I do believe he advances the debate by shedding some wisdom on the matter that prepares Job for the face-to-face -face encounter that he has been asking and, and seeking, and that is to stand before God himself. So who is this young man, Elihu? Evidently, Job and his three friends were not the only ones sitting there over this time when they've been, been entering into these dialogues, and we're told at the beginning of chapter 32 that Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite of the family of Ram, had been, had, had been waiting there waiting to, to listen to what was going on and to speak to Job because they, meaning the older three friends, were older than he was. The fact that we are given his genealogy makes it unlikely that this was just added in later. And it gives some weight to Elihu's testimony as worthy of regard. Sort of how oftentimes the prophets were told the prophet is the son of so-and-so and the son of so-and-so. So here's this young man who, out of a respect for the wisdom and experience of his elders, he's listened in on this conversation, and up to this point, he has respectfully withheld his opinion in the matter. He was expecting that, that these three older, wiser men would know what to say, would know how to, how to comfort and how to answer Job's uh, questions. But now, the older friends have stopped talking, and Job has stopped answering. And Elihu can't contain himself any longer. Why? Because what he has heard, we're told, has made him very mad. <laughs> Not just kind of roll your eyes, frustrated, mad, but we're told four times in the early verses of chapter 32 that Elihu burned with anger. <laughs> That's a strong word. He has heard enough, and now he is, he is compelled to speak up. And what made Elihu so mad? Well, if you look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 32, he burned with anger at Job because he, he justified himself rather than God. And he burned with anger at Job's friends because they found no answer, even though they had already declared Job to be wrong. And after listening to all this talk, Elihu assesses the situation and he says, you're both wrong. <laughs> you're both wrong. Neither of you actually get it. He says, you three think that, that you understand what God is doing and so you blame Job for something you can't prove that he has done. And Job, you, you think you, you have some idea of what God is doing and, and, and only answer you can come up with is you blame God. And neither of you really sees or understands the truth. And so Elihu says, it's time to hear my opinion. It's time to get my take. And I wonder if they, 
like many of the commentators, looked at Elihu as if to say, why should we listen to you? Why, are you, why, why should we give you any attention, you young whippersnapper, coming in here and acting like you know everything? In the, the movie Amazing Grace, it's a story of, of William Wilberforce and, and his life and, and pursuit of ending slavery. There's a scene where, where he comes into the kitchen and, and he's, he's struggling to find wisdom, struggling to, to come up with some answers to all that's going on in his life. And, and he turns and he looks and his butler and his kitchen servant Richard is there. And he offers some you know, wise quote from Sir Francis Bacon to William Wilberforce and he just kind of turns and he looks at him and he's like where did you get that from and the butler looks at him and says well I don't just dust your books sir (laughs) wisdom doesn't always come from the place that we would expect and that's exactly what Elihu says in 32 verse 7 and 9 he says I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. He was looking, he was expecting wisdom from these these older men. And he says, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the almighty that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Elihu says, just because you've, you've been around the block a few times doesn't make you an expert. It doesn't make you wise. He recognizes, again, that wisdom comes from the the breath of the Almighty. The Spirit of God reveals wisdom and understanding and truth to a man. And therefore, on that basis, Elihu says, listen to me. I have something to say. Now, again, why should we listen to Elihu? Because he's not speaking what he has reasoned from his own understanding or what he has, has discerned just from the, the traditions of, of old, those older than him. He is speaking what he believes God's spirit has revealed to him. Well, how do we know what he says comes from God? Well, as you, as you read what Elihu has to say, a lot of it sounds very similar to what the other three friends of Job were saying. And that's why many commentators kind of dismiss him. But first, we see a couple things that kind of lead us in this direction. First, Elihu is compelled to speak by a deep, burning sense of the truth. He says in chapter 32, verse 18, I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins just ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. And I will not show partiality or flattery. Again, Some think Elihu is just another windbag waiting to to vent. But but what he says here sounds a little bit like like the prophet Jeremiah. When he he, he no longer wanted to speak God's word. He had had suffered enough from speaking God's word. And and he says, but God's word burned in him like fire in his bones. And he could not hold it in. And so we we see Elihu has this burning compulsion to, to speak God's truth and his motives are not to just win friends or to to win an argument or to flatter people, but that God's truth would be heard. And secondly, Elihu's address goes uninterrupted longer than any of the others. He speaks for, for, like I said, six chapters uh, without anybody breaking in, without any response from Job or from the other three. And at the end, Job remains silent. He doesn't reply to him. 
I think his words hit home with Job in a way that the others did not. And they paved the way for God himself to speak into Job's life. In some ways, Elihu, I think, is the counselor that Job longed for, yet was not fully prepared to hear. He's a little bit like John the Baptist who comes and, and though unknowingly, paves the way for the appearance of the Lord. And lastly, over in Job 42, when God finally assesses the advice of Job that Job had been given, he rebukes Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, for not speaking what was right about God. But he says nothing about Elihu, leaving the impression that his counsel was on the mark. So God uses the wisdom of this young man to further open Job's eyes and perhaps to further soften his heart in preparation for the truth that God is about to reveal to him face to face. So let's, let's look at what Elihu has to say. It's important to note that different than the, the three others, Elihu addresses Job personally, calls him by name, and he uses Job's own words in the speeches to refute his claims. Remember what Job was asking. He was asking the three friends, show me, show me where I have sinned. Show me something that is worthy of this kind of suffering. And they couldn't answer him. Well, Elihu comes and he, he says, let me, let me show you what you have said, Job. And he begins to quote him. And first he says, Job, you assert your innocence and you blame God for being against you and not answering you. He says, but in that you are wrong. Look at verse, chapter 33, verse 9. You say, Job, you say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Yet God counts me as his enemy. Behold, he finds occasion against me and he counts me as his, his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all of my paths. Those are words that Job has used. And he says, behold, in this you are not right. Right away, Elihu addresses Job's major misconception that, 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 uh, that God is not just in what he is doing. Over in chapter 34, he says to Job in verse 5 and 6, or he says of what Job has said, Job claims, I am in the right and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. Again, Job doesn't necessarily have a wrong view of God as sovereign and mighty and, and perfectly within his right to do what he wants to do. But he says God is wrong in how he, he is applying that in Job's case. In the midst of his pain, in the midst of, of having his case heard and justifying himself, Job finally accuses God of being unjust. And Elihu says, Job, there you are wrong. In that, you were wrong. Of a truth, he says in chapter 34, verse 12, of a truth, God will not do wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Now, you might think, that's exactly what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were telling him. In fact, that's a quote from what Eliphaz said earlier. But there's a difference. And here's the difference. The difference is that, that whereas the older three were saying, Job, some sin in your life is the cause of your suffering. You've done something. You need to figure out what it is and repent of it. And then 
God will remove this suffering. So they were saying, Job, you, you, your, your sin has caused your suffering. Elihu does not say that. Elihu rebukes Job for sinning because of his suffering. This is important because up to this point, we have had rightly a predominantly positive and sympathetic view towards Job. But as Christopher Ash says in his commentary, however sympathetic we may be to his plight, however strongly we believe his protestations of innocence, which we know to be true, we have the, we have the, the view that, that chapter 2 gave us of what God is doing. Something in us hesitates when we hear Job speaking of God with disrespect. It is not true that he is suffering because he has sinned. But it is true that because he is suffering, he begins to say some sinful things. And so you see what's happening. Job, now holding firm to his integrity, wrestling with what God is doing, he's beginning to kind of break down a little bit. And his only explanation can be, God, you must be, you must be doing something unjust in my life. Here's a man with a clear conscience, a man walking in obedient faith and love for God. And yet when suffering hits, there are residues of sin that begin to come up to the surface, begin to come to the light. And while Job has served in many ways to point us to the unjust suffering of Jesus, he stands as a a foreshadowing of our Savior. In this, Job's fallen humanity begins to show through. And that's the point that Elihu seeks to hone in on and helps, helps explain, or wants to help us understand how in the end, Job can be affirmed by God for speaking rightly about God, but he can also be rebuked at the same time by Elihu for speaking wrongly about God. There's a lot that we could, we could spend time on if we unpacked all of what Elihu has to say in his speeches. Uh, some of it does re- rehearse what Uh, the previous friends had said reaffirming some of their their foundational truths but also not applying them to Job in this case but I want to point out for our purposes this morning just three things that I think are important that the other counselors have missed in their counsel to Job and the first is Elihu says one of the things God's doing in struggle and in pain is that he's speaking he's actually speaking to us God is speaking to us through pain one of, one of Job's complaints was that God had gone silent. And oftentimes when we're going through difficult times, that's what we think. Where is God? Why won't he, he, he answer me? What, where is he in all of this? But Elihu says in verse 14 of chapter 33 that God actually does speak. And he speaks in, in two ways, even though he says man does not necessarily perceive it. Now remember, at this time, Job and his friends, they don't have the scriptures. God had not set down his word through the writings of the law and the prophets and so forth. So Elihu Elihu says, one way God speaks is through dreams and visions. When a man is asleep on his bed, God comes and he opens the ears of men and he terrifies them with warnings. That's one way that God, God speaks. Some have thought this is a, kind of a reference to the conscience. God comes and he, he shows us things that we have done and, 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 and brings them and convicts us of things that we need to turn from. And then he says in verse 19, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. 
In other words, God also gets our attention through pain and suffering. If you've read C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain, which was, was born out of the deep pain and the suffering of his own experience in life and the death of his, his wife. And he says there, God whispers in our pleasure, he speaks in our conscience, and he shouts in our pain. God, pain is God's megaphone, says Lewis, to, to rouse us to see our utter dependence on him and his sovereign grace uh, to us. And look at what Elihu says is the reason God's speaking in these ways. In verse 18, he says, he says God does this to keep his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. You see, the difference is Elihu, Elihu sees the redemptive purpose in God's pain and in suffering we experience. And then that is followed by this, this beautiful expanded description of God's gracious rescue of a man in pain that is again a, 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 a wonderful foreshadowing of the gospel. He says it in verse 23. He speaks of an angel whom he calls a, a mediator. Remember that term? Remember Job saying uh, he, he wished he had a, a mediator, an advocate who could, who could stand in his place back in verse chapters 9 and chapter 16? Well, well, here, Elihu says, there is someone like that. If, if, if an angel, if a mediator stands before man and, and, uh, and speaks to him what is right, and as a result has mercy on him, he says he will speak for him, saying, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Isn't that interesting? That mediator saying a ransom has been paid for this, this man in pain and in suffering. He can't do it himself. And then he says, after that, man is restored to health and man prays to God and he, God accepts him. He sees his face with a shadow of joy and he restores man to his righteousness. What a great description of the redeemer that Job knew lived and longed for and that we know has come. Elihu says the pains and the trials of life are not, not God turning his back on and shutting his mouth towards his children. Rather, it's his means of, of, of rescuing, of delivering them from destruction, of restoring them to, to himself. And when we're going through times of suffering or trial, the first question to ask is usually, where is God in all this? But a better question is, what is God saying in all of this? What is God teaching me in all of this? God may indeed use times of pain to point out some sin in our life. Or he may be using it to just show us our utter dependence on him. Paul prayed for that, that thorn to be removed from his flesh, and God said, no, because I want you to see that my grace is sufficient. You depend upon me. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. He may be using pain to, to speak to others through our perseverance, through our, our clinging to faith and holding as Job is doing fast to his integrity. He may use it to remind us that he is faithful or to teach us something we would otherwise have missed. 
And so, so Elihu has this sense of the, the refining, the, 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 the um, redemptive purposes of pain in our lives. And he understands that God speaks to us to again and again in this way to redeem us from the darkness and destructiveness of sin and, and bring us, he says, into the light of life. <laughs> and then a second thing that Elihu was able to see that the others did not, and, and, and that builds on what we just said, is that God, God is actually refining the righteous through suffering. He's not only speaking to us, but he is, he is refining us through suffering. Now remember, again, when we talk about the righteous, we're not talking about sinless people. Even Job recognizes that he has sinned. We're talking about those who, who are accepted by God, those who believe on him, who love him, who serve him. And Job's friend's explanation was that when the righteous suffer, it simply means they're not righteous. <laughs> Job's explanation was that when the righteous do suffer, it must mean that God is not just. <laughs> and Elihu says the righteous do suffer. And the purpose of God has in it is to draw them closer to him, to, to, to bring them to, to see any remaining sin and, and come to repentance and, and trust in him. Turn to chapter 36 if you have your Bibles in, in verse 6. There Elihu says, God is mighty. He does not keep the wicked alive but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous but with kings on the throne he sets them forever uh, and, and they are exalted. Again, that sounds a lot like Eliphaz and company. God punishes the wicked and prospers the righteous. But then he goes on in verse 8, and he says, And if they, meaning the righteous, are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, and they are a bit, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction. He commands that they return from their iniquity. Elihu acknowledges, again, that the righteous do at times suffer, and God's purpose is to, is to open their ears, to hear his instruction, to lead them to repentance, to, to reveal things that they may not be aware of. And God's purpose in Job's suffering was not just to prove to Satan Job's faith, but it was also to refine that faith through that suffering. To expose in Job any hidden pride, any sense of self-righteousness. That Job might come to love and cherish God and his grace all the more. And again, Elihu uses Job's own words to show how as a result of this suffering, Job has impugned God's justice. And so Elihu, in a sense, is answering Job's call to, to show him where he has sinned. And in doing that, Elihu says to Job, but God's purpose is not to condemn, but to refine. Not to, not to punish, but to purify. You know, if you place an egg and a potato both in boiling water, what happens? One becomes harder and the other becomes softer. And in the hot fires of suffering, our hearts can either be like an egg and grow hard towards God or they can be softened to the sovereignty and his grace and his wisdom. And Elihu says in chapter 36, verse 13, the godless in heart cherish anger. They do not cry for help when, when God binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the cult prostitutes. There's the, the hardening effect. In suffering, we can turn away from God. We can refuse to cry out to him. 
But in verse 15, he says, he delivers the afflicted by their affliction and he opens their ear by adversity. There's the softening effect. We see this echoed in Psalm 66. The psalmist, speaking of, of God's work in his people in Israel, says, Blessed, O God, bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. God brings oftentimes severe trials for the purpose of refining his people like silver, and the result is they praise him for it. And of course, we see this reflected over and over in the New Testament. Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is tested by fire, may redound to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We will see it fully, and we will be able to worship and praise him for it. And then what we read in Hebrews, our Father disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it you see God's purpose in suffering in the lives of his children it, it is indeed for our good it is to open our ears to what he has for us it is to, it, it, and, we, and what he has for us, we know in the word. It's to open our ears to this truth in his word. It's to open our hearts to that truth, to reveal the, the remaining dross of sin that needs to be burned off or to remind us of, of the suffering which Jesus endured that we might live to point us to God's grace and to his love as our heavenly father. Job could not see this through the dark clouds of pain. And oftentimes it's hard for us to see this when we're going through a difficult time. Sometimes it takes someone like Elihu to remind us. Job's friends miss this in their search for a simple, straightforward, kind of cut and dry theology of suffering. But God gives young Elihu eyes to see that he uses suffering for good in the life of his children. And lastly, Elihu points out Simply that God is God and his ways are higher than our ways. In chapter, verse 12 of chapter 33, he says it very plainly. He, he says, God is greater than man. And over in verse 36, uh, chapter 36, again, Elihu sees a growing storm coming on the horizon. And he says, behold, God is great and we know him not. The number of his years are unsearchable. He draws up the drops of water. They distill in the mist and the rain. And when the sky pours down and drops on mankind abundantly, can anyone understand that? Spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of the pavilion. And he goes on in chapter 37 to preface God's own words to these effects by saying, in essence, who is man to question God Almighty? Ultimately, in the midst of pain and suffering, there are things that we will never know, we will never understand. There will remain unanswered questions. Some of Job's questions remain unanswered. 
we will at times just be left to wonder at the reasons why this is happening, unable to see the threads of God's providence being woven together. But whereas Job's friends used God's greatness and his transcendence as a, as a kind of hammer to come down on Job and indicate his utter worthless as a, worthlessness as a human being, Elihu points out that the transcendence and majesty of God is actually an encouraging reminder that what we don't know, he knows. And what we can't do, he is doing. And we can trust him even when we don't understand him. When we see and understand the greatness of God, when, we, when his power and might are magnified in the storm, which has both destructive as well as, as life-giving power, we can with humble hearts submit to his sovereign will in our lives, knowing that he is God and we are not. And that he has a plan and a purpose that though we may not fully understand it, we can fully trust it. Job will soon hear that from God himself. But Elihu models the, the proper response we should have in the face of God's greatness. We're told the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And so a, a proper awe, a proper fear and reverence and humble submission to who God is is the pathway to walking in wisdom and knowledge even when we don't know all the answers. So what do we learn from this, the wisdom of this young man, Elihu? Well, we first learn that wisdom and understanding ultimately come from God and the Spirit of God opening our eyes and hearts to His truth. For us, through His Word, life experience is good and wisdom is often gained over the years, but ultimately it is found in the word of God and the spirit's work in us to, to, to reveal and to cause us to believe that truth. And so we should not be afraid to either speak or to listen to such wisdom when it is given with a sincere and humble heart. And we finally hear from Elihu that indeed the righteous do suffer, that God at times brings pain and affliction into the lives of those he loves, and, but he does it for a good purpose. He does it to open our hearts and ears to his truth, to reveal in our lives any, any remaining sin or pride that needs to be, be burned off and refined by his grace, to warn us and to protect us from the hardening effects of sin and suffering, but to rather soften our hearts to his care and his love as a good father. God refines the righteous in the crucible of suffering and brothers and sisters, as hard as it is, we can praise him for that. And when we don't understand it, when we're still plagued by the unanswered questions, when our heart wants to justify itself and find something wrong with what God is doing, we can know that God is still God. And his ways are not our ways. But the one who controls the wind and the rains and the lightning and the storm, he also controls every circumstance and detail of our lives. And that should bring us peace and comfort in the long run. And lastly, Elihu points us to the gospel. Ultimately, God sends a mediator. Not one in a thousand angels, but his one and only son, Jesus, the perfectly righteous one, the one who is, is perfectly blameless and upright and never sins against God and he stands before us having paid a ransom 
by going through the crucible of suffering and the fires of hell on the cross for us. And now he lives to intercede. (laughs) Hebrews says he was perfected through suffering. And so as we now share in his suffering, he is perfecting us. He is refining us more and more into his image that as we trust him to be with us, as we trust him to work his redemption for us through his suffering and as we trust the Father to use that to refine us in our faith. And so sometimes in the midst of pain, we cannot see God clearly. Sometimes our sight is clouded by our own pride, by worldly explanations of what's going on or worldly solutions being offered. The scripture tells us Jesus is there. He is there. He is leading the way. He is calling us down the the rocky and painful path. But he's also providing the grace we need to persevere through that dark valley. And as we trust him, he promises to open our eyes more and more, to see his grace and glory, and to make us more and more like him. He is the wisdom of God. And to him we can look as our rock and redeemer in the midst of the refining trials of life. Let's pray together. Lord, we don't like to be refined. We don't like to be disciplined. We don't like to go through crucibles of suffering. We don't like to see those we love and even those we don't love go through those things either. But we thank you. We thank you that you have already walked that path for us. That you know all the answers to our questions. That you have a good and and an eternal purpose for the things you are doing in our life. And so Lord, where we cannot see that, help us to have faith to trust you. And where we will not see it, would you open our eyes to your word and to your truth that we may indeed see that you are a good and gracious father. And Lord, for those here who may be going through suffering right now, perhaps going through it and, and, and totally wondering what you're doing, Father, would you bring comfort and rest to them through your son, Jesus Christ, the only place that comfort is found. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.